Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than MutinyRadio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's Performance Space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk, MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. The second annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is coming March 1st through 5th, 2017 to San Francisco, featuring 25 shows in five days and 50 comedians from across the entire U.S. From Washington and Portland to Los Angeles, New York to Indiana, Tennessee to Pennsylvania, these comics will join San Francisco's best underground comedians for five days of comedy at Mutiny Radio. All shows will be live streaming and available after via podcast at www.mutinyradio.fm. But see them live in our intimate 30-seat performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Mission, March 1st through 5th. Tickets available on our website, www.mutinyradio.fm now. Brought to you by our generous festival sponsors, Alta California Botanicals, Destiny's Mom, What a Tomato Produce Company, the law offices of John P. Strauss III, Asiento, FruFruHot.com, Jankytown.org, Brooke Heineken, Pervert Fervor, and Trina Roderick. Asiento. This locally owned Mission Neighborhood Bar and Restaurant is excited to be a sponsor for the festival. 
We hope you'll join us any night of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival for happy hour pricing all night long. Just mention that you are an audience member for happy hour pricing March 1st through the 5th at Asiento. Our address is 2730 21st Street at Bryant Street, just a half a block away from Mutiny Radio. Asiento has a warm, friendly neighborhood vibe that's perfect for an after-work drink or for a night out. Featuring a comfortable bar and extensive tapas menu, this is the perfect place for groups that want to get together for drinks and food. Join us at Asiento. Whoa there. What a tomato. Where did you find such a nice tomato? What a tomato? I know, I just said that. Where'd you get that fine heirloom? What a tomato. Look, man, this isn't a come on. Just tell me where you got that beautiful tomato. What a tomato. No, no, seriously. I actually want to eat a tomato. I love tomatoes. Where did you get that tomato? What a tomato. Dude, it's a fine, beautiful tomato. I want to eat one, too. I want one right now. I like to eat them like an apple with salt. Tell me, where'd you get the tomato? What a tomato. Are you high? Just tell me where I can find a tomato like that. What a tomato. Is this a metaphor? What a tomato produce company in San Francisco. For all your wholesale produce needs... 2055 Jared Avenue. Hope your legs are looking sexy, because we're going to charm your pants off. Come to the Charm Offensive Comedy Show at Punchline San Francisco. It's a night of great jokes, magnetic personalities, featuring the Bay Area's most awarded comedians, plus national headliners. You'll laugh. You'll swoon. And when you regain your composure, you'll swipe right. Tuesday, March 7th. Doors at 7, show at 7.30 at 444 Battery Street in San Francisco's Financial District. Brought to you by Paco Romaine and Destiny's Moms Comedy. Our last show sold out, so get your tickets now at punchlinecomedyclub.com. Charm Offensive at Punchline Comedy San Francisco. Tuesday, March 7th. See you there, sexy. What's with the limp? I got hit by a car on my bike. This person just ran a red light. How are you going to work? You wait tables. I don't know. I'm terrified. I count on my tips and these hospital bills are confusing. The insurance adjusters just treat me like I'm a piece of paperwork. Man, you should go to johnstrausslaw.com. John Strauss is a great personal injury attorney. When I got hurt, he handled everything for me. He was on my side. And best of all, I didn't have to pay out of pocket. He got paid when I did. That's great because I cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Yeah, don't let them confuse you and trick you. They treat you like you're a business. And it's not business, it's personal. Injury. JohnStraussLaw.com
Labor and love here. This is the B. Alicia Keys, a girl on fire. Watch out, Trump. We got a girl on fire. We got moon. all kinds of executive orders this week. This is what would happen if uh, Las Cafeteras were president. Cosas pasó. 
mi novio y nos queremos casar, güey. Cafeteras. If I were president, instead of uh, Donald Trump, if I were president, this is the B and this is Mutiny Radio, and uh, we're still on our intro here. How about this one? 
Allen Ginsberg with his howl of protest. I don't like the government where I live. I don't like dictatorship of the rich. I don't like bureaucrats telling me what to eat. I don't like police dogs sniffing round my feet. I don't like communist censorship of my books. I don't like Marxists complaining about my looks. I don't like Castro insulting members of my sex. Leftists insisting we got the mystic fix. I don't like capitalists selling me gasoline coke. Multinationals burning Amazon trees to smoke. Big corporation take over media mind. I don't like the top bananas that are robbing Guatemala banks blind. I don't like the KGB gulag concentration camps. I don't like the Maoist Cambodian death dance. Fifteen million were killed by Stalin, the terrorist war. He has killed our red revolution forevermore. I don't like anarchists screaming, love is free. I don't like the CIA, they killed John Kennedy. Paranoia tanks sit in Prague and Hungary. But I don't like how the revolution paid for by the CIA. Tyranny in Turkey or Korea, 1980. I don't like right-wing death squad democracy. Police state Iran, Nicaragua yesterday. They say fair, please. Government keep the secret police off of me. Communism, no hope, capitalism, yeah. Everybody's lying on both sides, yeah, yeah, yeah. The bloody iron curtain of American military power is a mirror image of Russia's red Babel Tower. Jesus Christ was spotless but was crucified by the mob. Law and order, Herod's hired soldiers did the job. Flower power's fine, but innocence has got no protection. A man who shot John Lennon had a hero worshippers connection. The moral of this song is that the world is in a horrible place. Scientific industry devours the human race. In every country, armed with tear gas and TV. Secret masters everywhere, bureaucratized for you and me. Terrorists and police together build a lower class rage. Propaganda, murder, manipulate the upper class age. Hmm. Can't tell the difference between a turkey and a provocateur. If you're feeling confused, the government's in there for sure. Aware, aware.
Capital Air, kind of an anarchist howl. Uh, we're going to play a little more Allen Ginsberg later on. This is The Bee, and this is Labor and Love, and we're coming at you today from 2781 21st Street, coming into your existence, if you allow us. I am The Bee, and this is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, at the negotiating table, that is, you're probably on the menu. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We've had an Another tumultuous week, and we started off today with uh, Alicia Keys, referent to the Women's March, where millions of women all over the United States and their allies marched and demonstrated and spoke and listened to Women's right to choose, women's right to her own body was the subject. The right of women to decide for themselves and their lives and not to be ridiculed and stereotyped and exploited as sex symbols. Alicia Keys, and that was called Girl on Fire. She's a girl on fire. Video shows the girl ordering, cleaning up her whole house <laughs> by magic. Second on there, we had Las Cafeteras. Las Cafeteras with If I Were President. Um, Las Cafeteras were, is, are a band of um, Chicanos. at um, Northridge, Cal State Northridge. See, Las Cafeteras is a Chicano band from East Los Angeles, California. They started out as students at the East Side Cafe space in El Sereno, Los Angeles, where they took San Jorocho classes, influenced by music from Veracruz, Mexico, and eager to teach others about it. They started playing in 2005. Their namesake derives from the organization where they took classes. To honor women, they feminized the group name by calling themselves Las Cafeteras. Beside Cafe, people that met in the cafe. And their song was If I Were President. 
features the president taking questions. If I were president. And then um, finally we had Allen Ginsberg with his capital air, kind of an anarchist howl. Welcome to the show, everybody. This is the B. Labor and love, labor opinion, commentary, news and history for the working year. Again, we had a, a week of uh, our president. Uh, hurting people. putting restrictions on immigrants and refugees. You look back in history in 1948, well, why wouldn't anyone take those ships full of refugees that were sailing from Europe? Why wouldn't anyone take them in? Why wouldn't anyone take in Jews while they were being tortured and murdered in Germany wholesale? Well, now we know because uh, there are leaders who will exploit those differences. Oh, we don't want those Jews here now. Uh, Trump is moving to take funds away from quote-unquote sanctuary cities. That is, cities <clears throat> that will not turn you over to the police. Just for, say, example, calling 911. People with criminal records and people who commit crimes, of course to be captured and perhaps deported but it's uh, a wholesale action now we're creating uh, fugitive populations within our society and uh, Trump says oh don't worry dreamers is it people who were brought here as children and grew up here don't worry, I have a very big heart. We have government by personality, a dictatorship of the rich, and he is their front man. All right, let's see what we got today on Labor Radio. I want to read this, listen to this one on um, Radio Labor. It's about Richard Trungpa, who's head of the AFL-CIO and U.S. labor vows to fight mass deportations. Trump has called for their deportation. The unions say otherwise. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. The specter of mass deportation is absolutely terrifying. That is Richard Trumka, the president of the largest in the United States, the AFL-CIO. He was speaking ahead of the inauguration of Donald Trump as the president of the U.S. He is especially concerned about mass deportations called for by Mr. Trump. There are an estimated 11 million undocumented migrants in the U.S. They have about 5 million children, many of whom were born in the country. 
Many of the people who live and work in this great country are frightened. They're scared. And I share their concern. You see, Donald Trump campaigned on mass deportation, on building walls, on imposing religious litmus tests. And make no mistake about it, those proposals are a violation of our founding principles and our basic humanity. Many are concerned that raids, detentions, and worse will occur immediately after the president-elect takes office. You see, when it comes to immigration policy, we at the AFL-CIO took strong exception to the Obama administration's enforcement policies. And Mr. Trump is threatening something much worse, escalating the pace and the number of deportations, sending armed agents into our neighborhoods and workplaces, and to arrest members of our unions and our communities. The specter of mass deportation is absolutely terrifying. The men and women who live and who work here, who stand in line with us at the grocery store, and whose children attend our schools. What he has proposed will tear at the very fabric of our society and our values. And we will not stand for it. We'll resist it with everything that we have, everywhere that we are, every way that we can. And we refuse to be divided into us versus them. Instead of uprooting and deporting aspiring Americans, our co-workers, and our neighbors, we really must embrace each other because we're not separate and we're not autonomous. Instead of building walls, we must be bound together in solidarity. These are the bedrock principles that the labor movement has always stood for. Solidarity requires action to become real. So in the weeks and the months ahead, if Mr. Trump does as he promised, millions of working people will face the same exact trauma. They'll be afraid to go to work, take their children to school, let alone speak up when they encounter abuse or exploitation. They'll need information, they'll need support, and they'll need active solidarity. And our homes, our communities, our workplaces, and our unions will be vulnerable unless we all stand strong together. See, the American labor movement will be part of the infrastructure of response and protection against mass deportation and any other efforts to criminalize working people.
Okay, here Trungpa makes the point that, or he hints at it. If you look behind the mask, if you look behind the curtain, if you look at all these issues, um, immigration, refugees, Deportations, all these things divide us. They divide the working class. They're disguised as other things. They're disguised as people from other countries. Aliens is the word used to describe, often describe people from other countries. People from other countries. Refugees, people in need. These are working people who are looking for your help. Trump and his rulers, his his cabinet, his dictatorship of the rich, understand that that as long as they strike blows at people and turn us against one another, they can get on with their program. As we heard last week in Fred Glass's、uh, history of the California labor movement,、um, U.S. labor made that mistake in the 1870s here in San Francisco, especially by blaming another victim of capitalist dictatorship, Chinese the Chinese worker, for their own problems. Problem was with not with the people who were working, willing to work cheaper to survive. The problem was with the capitalist who set up that relationship, who was exploiting the wage-labor relationship, which is what Donald Trump is doing now. And I want to get into the. Petition for Standing Rock is from Change.org. Stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. Petition by Anna Lee, Bobby Jean, and the Osete Sakowin Youth, Fort Yates, North Dakota. And here's what the girl says: I'm 13 years old and as an enrolled member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, I lived my whole life by the Missouri River. It runs by my home in Fort Yates, North Dakota, and my great-grandparents' original home was along the Missouri River in Cannonball. The river is a crucial part of our lives here on the Standing Rock Reservation. But now a private oil company wants to build a pipeline across the Missouri River, less than a mile away from the Standing Rock Reservation. And if we don't stop it, it'll poison our river and threaten the health of my community. Check it out, Change.org, and please sign the petition. Now, what President Trump is doing is he's taking advantage. <clears throat> Of the wage labor, wage slavery relationship, 
Donald Trump is saying to workers in North Dakota, you want some jobs? Okay, you want to have a job? So you'll then you'll do this. This is the decision. Workers are going to have to turn around on this. Workers are going to have to say no. Okay, I'll go without for a while. I don't want to pollute the earth further. I don't want to degrade our planet just so some big oil people can make some more money. No, I'm not going to do this. Yeah, I'll go without a job for a while. I'll find something else to do. Who's willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Let's say, you, okay, you've got a family. You've got your family is depending on your income, or you personally are depending on your own income to live because that's how it's set up. Okay, you're a wage slave. That is. You have to work. You have to have a job in order to survive. So for Trump to say, "Okay, well, come on and、um, pollute the earth here,、I'll、give you a good, good job, even though only about 80 permanent jobs are going to be created, people will work on building the pipeline. They'll get good work. They'll get security jobs where they can walk around with attack dogs." Attack women and and young people and demonstrators, water protectors. That's the choice now. That's before us. Work and degrade the earth, or refuse to work, find other work that deconstructs this entire、uh, structure that's crushing so many. Play some music. Blah 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 blah. Don't say I never warned you when your train gets lost.
Here we go. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe a rock and roll addict dancing on the stage. Money, drugs at your command. Women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper, it might be a young Turk Maybe the head of some bigger TV network You may be rich or poor, you may be blind or lame Maybe living in another country under another name But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes you are, you're gonna have to serve somebody Working on a home Might be living in a mansion You might live in a dome You may own guns And you may even own tanks You may be somebody's landlord You may even own banks But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody Maybe a city councilman taking bribes on the side Maybe working in a barber shop, you may know how to cut hair It may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody Somebody. Yes, indeed, 
there's another enemy. And that enemy is the immigrant. Angela Davis on uh, immigration. It's not accidental. Criminalizing immigration. That as this rhetoric, this anti-crime rhetoric developed, as the anti-welfare rhetoric developed, an anti-immigrant rhetoric also developed. You know, keep the borders closed, prevent the... And you see, it's interesting, it's not just a question of preventing people from other countries from coming to the U.S. and trying to establish a life here. Um, it's a question of presenting certain kinds of people, people from certain countries, people from third world countries, people from Central America, people from Asia, I read a study that indicated that actually the, uh, the, the largest number of illegal, quote, illegal immigrants come from European countries. But no one ever considers the possibility that a white person could be an illegal. I mean, I know quite a number of illegal people, you know, from places like... Uh, Britain and France who come in on student visas and decide to stay. And they don't even feel threatened. I mean, it's interesting. They are not even afraid of the INS. Whereas people who are, quote, legal citizens, but who look as if they might come from another country, fear what the INS might do to them, or that if they don't have their ID with them, that they might get deported. So isn't it interesting that in all three of these um, examples that I've given, the figures are clearly racialized figures. And I think that there's a structural connection between the demonization of the immigrant and the criminalization of populations of color in this country. And let me give you just a sense of, of how I would try to make those connections. I said I, I might uh, say a few words about uh, capitalism, or, or did I? Well, I alluded to the fact that even though I'm no longer a member of the Communist Party, I'm still very much committed to um, um, democratic socialism and to finding ways to challenge a capitalist system which has probably uh, an, an even vaster impact on our lives, on our daily lives, than ever before. Because we're talking about capitalism in the age of globalization, right? We're talking about global capitalism. We're talking about transnational capitalism. What we are witnessing is the development of a um, 
circuit of corporations that belong to no particular nation state, that do not, that are not expected to respect the laws of any given nation state, that move across borders at will in search, in perpetual search of what? More profits. And if any people here would feel any hostility for our, oh yes, he's Jewish, oh yes, definitely. And I'm Jewish, and uh, Goldwater. Okay, we got a little bit of Lenny Bruce there. Lenny Bruce coming in, talking about Barry Goldwater. Maybe we'll play that one uh, a little later. We have to continue to resist and to laugh and to poke fun and to expose our class enemies. Dictatorship of the rich, that's what we got. Let's listen now to Radio Labor. And or let's listen to When We Can Review. Thirty-three new labor law violation charges were filed this week against CKE, Andy Puzder's fast food chain. Puzder is Trump's nominee for U.S. Labor Secretary, a job that's supposed to enforce labor laws to improve workers' lives. The charges include sexual harassment, wage theft through wage and hour violations, and unfair labor practice charges. Charges were filed at the NLRB, the EEOC, and the state labor departments across 10 states. Katana Cardona works at a Florida Hardee's. She said her manager sexually harassed her and went unpunished. When I was one and a half months pregnant with my youngest child, he asked me for a kiss. I refused and began to walk away. But he grabbed me by the collar and inches from my face said, if you don't start giving me what I want, I'm going to have to start taking it from you. I was so shaken by the incident, it took me two days to even say anything to another manager. Instead of punishing the shift manager who had done this to me, they switched me from night shift to the day shift. Trump met this week with building trade union leaders and reiterated his interest in infrastructure projects to create jobs as he moved to restart the Keystone XL and Dakota pipeline projects. Sean McGarvey, president of North America's building trade unions, says Trump gave continued hope to thousands of skilled craft construction professionals in America's heartland for whom the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipeline projects have been an economic lifeline. The North America Building Trades Union's statement says the building trades are encouraged that one of President Trump's first official actions will put tens of thousands of Americans to work and unleash billions and billions of dollars of earned wages into our economy. But McGarvey says Trump did not say that he would preserve the federal Davis-Bacon prevailing wage law. Dish Network is being ordered to reinstate 18 union-represented workers and to rescind unilateral changes in terms and conditions of employment at two sites in Texas. The National Labor Relations Board says Dish Network prematurely declared an impasse in collective bargaining to impose its conditions 
on the workers. The NLRB administrative law judge decision requires Dish Network to make the workers whole for any losses they incurred during the changes imposed on them by the company. That includes back pay. Teamsters General President James P. Hoffa says Trump is making good on his campaign promise to withdraw the U.S. from the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Hoffa says, quote, with this decision, the president has taken the first step toward fixing 30 years of bad trade policies that have cost working Americans millions of good-paying jobs, end quote. Workers Independent News puts workers and their unions on the national radio news airwaves every day. To help keep labor's voice on the air, go to laborradio.org. Workers Independent News provided by Diversified Media Enterprises. I'm Doug. There you have it, the central contradiction that's facing us now is Trump says go ahead with the Dakota pipeline. Go ahead with Standing Rock and American workers are happy. Hoffa says it's providing millions of jobs that's going to pump lots of money into the economy. Here we are. If your job is to destroy the earth, do you keep doing it? What can you do to support yourself and your loved people? Except work. Find other work. Create other work. Okay, here's Radio Labor, Worldwide Labor Report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on January 27, 2017. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, thousands of union women protest Donald Trump's policies. Labor campaigns in support of 200 Yemeni oil workers illegally fired. 2,000 unionists are participating in an online labor education course. And the Labor Start report about union events around the world. This is Radio Labor. As the new president of the United States, Donald Trump, begins his term in office, protests against his policies continue. Radio Labor's senior correspondent, Seamarie Ainsborough, has a report. Millions of women unionists in the United States and many other countries are continuing their protest actions against the newly elected American president, Donald Trump, and his policies of misogyny and racism. The continuing efforts come after a remarkable series of demonstrations on Saturday, January 22nd, when half a million women and their supporters marched in Washington. Hundreds of thousands marched in cities around the world in sympathy with their sisters in the United States. One of the demonstration rally speakers was Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers. The next massive demonstration against the policies of Mr. Trump is planned for April 15th. 
That is tax day in the United States. Mr. Trump, unlike all other presidents in recent memory, has refused to release his tax returns. The speculation is that he is hiding the fact that he has not paid any taxes at all in the past few years. This is Seymourie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. The international labor movement is calling on unionists to help 200 oil workers in Yemen who have been illegally fired without compensation. Yemen is a country of 24 million in the Arabian Peninsula. It has been trapped in a civil war that has killed 5,700 people since 2015. The Norwegian-based oil company DNO fired the 200 workers without any notice or pay. I talked to Diana Hungera about the plight of the workers and their families. Ms. Hungera is the director of the Energy Industry Department of the Global Union Industrial. Industrial represents some 50 million workers in 140 countries, including Yemen. I asked Ms. Hungera to describe the actions of the oil company DNO. It's a company based in Norway doing business in Yemen since 2000. And due to the war in Yemen, DNO terminated their operations in April 2015 and they sacked 200 workers. DNO didn't pay any redundancy money or compensation to its staff and left them without the social and economic protection in a country on the brink of collapse. And one year and a half after, workers haven't still received anything. So I think that all their complaints are fair. Don't you think so? How did DNO fire the workers? Did it follow the laws of the country? No, the 200 workers were fired by text message or by email, what is absolutely shameful and illegal. And this is illegal under the Yemeni law, because the company used the ongoing war and the security situation in Yemen to avoid all the responsibilities for its staff. And our affiliate in Yemen, the General Union of Petroleum, Minerals and Chemical Workers, took the company to the Yemeni Labor Court, which ruled on August 2016 that DNO should pay all the wages to the workers they sacked or have this property confiscated. The law in, in Yemen states that if a company is granted a license to operate an oil field, it must pay wages and social obligations for, all, for as long as uh, they have the license. And for the moment, they haven't done anything. How has the company DNO treated its workers in the past? Well, we could say that DNO is not a good model to, to follow. They used to pay the lowest wages in, in Yemen compared to other oil companies operating in the, in the country. Hundreds of trade unionists from all over the world are participating in a unique online course conducted by the Global Labor University. The GLU is a network of universities and labor organizations with partners in many countries. I talked to the coordinator of the course, Tendiwa Gross. I asked her first to describe the subject of the online course. The massive open online course of the Global Labour University is about decent work in global supply chains. Now, how did we get to choose the topic? We know that today 80% of global trade actually takes place in the global supply chains linked to transnational corporations. So the Global Labour University decided in 2014 in its International Steering Committee to make global supply chains the topic of our next massive open online course. How many people are participating in the course and where are they from? 
currently have over 2,100 participants registered in the course. They come from all parts of the world, a lot from Asia, a lot from Africa, a lot from Europe as well. Then, of course, we have uh, a large part of students coming from the United States of America. As our lead professor, Dr. Mark Anna, comes from, from the U.S. Is there a cost for participating in the course? No. It's for free to register in the course, and that's something which we pay a lot of attention to in the Global Labour University. So for us, it's very important that everyone around the world has the chance to participate in this learning experience. So therefore, it's completely for free to register in the course. Um, participants can access all the material. They can even download all the material, interact with all the other participants, and take the full course in the audit track, which is for free. Now, for those who wish to take the course as a certified training, they can choose the certificate track. The certificate track costs 49 euros, and it uh, means that participants have to complete 80% of the course's video lectures and quiz questions, and that they have to take a final multiple choice exam at the end of the course. Now here with his report about union events around the world is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Here's a small sample of the more than 2,200 stories our volunteers collected in the last week. Our top stories section included links to news about the reaction of the American labor movement to the inauguration of Donald Trump, workers organizing in Pakistan despite a legal ban on unions in some sectors, and a victory for Turkish metal workers. We had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Burmese textile workers uh, restarted their eight-week-long strike after negotiations failed. Haitian healthcare workers were out in an effort to raise their starvation wages, as were train cleaners in the UK. Civil servants in Cote d'Ivoire continued their strike in an effort to obtain a wage increase. Dairy workers in Australia walked out over their wages and working conditions. Road transport drivers parked their trucks across Bangladesh to protest violent attacks on their co-workers. Indian healthcare workers stopped work when their pay was not forthcoming. A 90-day strike by oil workers in Trinidad and Tobago ended with a referral of the dispute to the labor court. Police charged a healthcare worker's picket line in Nepal, seriously injuring five strikers. And in Hungary, workers struck an auto plant in a dispute over pay. Our top working women stories included coverage of the successes of Canadian unions in bargaining domestic violence leave, the recent retirement of North Africa's first woman train driver, a push by Ethiopian unions to raise working conditions for women, the four women running for senior positions in Tunisia's UGTT, and the glass ceiling in Kenya's education system. The health and safety newswire we run in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about an outbreak of E. coli on a British ferry, a successful campaign by women workers in Pakistan to register sexual harassment complaints, and the experiences of an Australian health and safety instructor in China. Currently, Labour Start is running six online actions. Take just a few seconds out of your day and join thousands of trade unionists around the world in helping workers make their lives better, or even help save those lives. This is 
And that's it. International labor news you can use. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Okay, that was... This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Solidarity News reporting on conditions all around the world. And uh, Global Labor University. Interesting, something I'll have to look up. I want to talk a little bit now about uh, Donald Trump's um, labor secretary. Betsy DeVos, and I, as I call her Betsy DeVos Fox, because now she's been put in charge, or he wants to have her put in charge of the Department of Education, oversee all federal education programs. Um, DeVos, in her confirmation hearings, DeVos's responses to senators' questions may have made her look uninformed and unprepared. She said students need guns to protect themselves from grizzly bears. She didn't know federal disability laws apply to schools. She couldn't explain basic education policy. She refused to answer whether charter schools and traditional public schools should be judged on the same accountability measures. Her next confirmation hearing has been delayed to January 31st to give senators a week to wade through her financial filings. Okay, as we said, this is government by the rich, dictatorship of the rich. She and her husband, Dick, heir to his father's Amway fortune, own $1.5 billion in assets. And of course, her brother is the notorious Eric Prince, who was the CEO of Blackwater, the security for hire organization, very active in, uh, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, involved in several scandals there. DeVos's thing is cha- ch- charter schools, but even beyond that, uh, money for religious schools, federal money for religious schools. The Voss family pushed for the state law that established charter schools in Michigan. Then they pushed to lift the cap on charters. Most recently, they put a squeeze on state Republicans to kill part of a bill that would have bailed out Detroit public schools. Think Arne Duncan's famous quote that the best thing that ever happened to uh, public schools in Louisiana was Hurricane Katrina because it destroyed them all and it allowed the market people, the charter people to start from scratch and build a, uh, a market-based school system or to begin to. The family also pushed to raise the state limit on campaign contributions, then showed Republicans their appreciation by donating up to the new max. Thanks to the DeVos's Michigan hands, $1 billion a year to charter schools. 
charter enrollment has grown by 75%. With tax regulation and oversight, charters in Michigan are easy to open and very hard to close. Despite complaints of corruption as public money flows to outside companies, to high rents, to real estate investments, and to relatives of the charter managers. Yes, what a racket. School, you know, make money from student schooling. This is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love. I guess I should identify myself here. This is a labor show, labor history, opinion, news, commentary. Welcome. Remember, if you don't stand up, you'll be counted as standing up for sitting down. Father might hate his own daughter if she were gay. 
Dear Mr. President, we had an earlier one of Las Cafeteras singing If We Were President. I want to move now to Chapter 3 of Fred Glass's History of the California Labor Movement. We saw last week how isolated the labor market was in California so that carpenters and other mechanics could earn top wages better wages than in the East, and that the coming of the railroad changed all that. Uh, Local goods were swamped by cheaply produced goods from the East, and working people came from the East uh, on the train to settle and to work here. So the whole labor movement kind of, labor market kind of collapsed. This chapter tells about a chaotic period. One of the, let me interject, one of the things that it pointed out, last chapter pointed out, was how when workers are divided, as Trump is dividing us now, then we lose. 
white workers dividing from Asian workers, for example. Chapter two, Golden Lands Working Jobs are plentiful, and if you don't want to work, you can always go to the beach. Just ask Otis. Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times. In addition to shaping the heavenly image of Southern California, Otis is the chief architect of LA's ongoing anti-union campaign. It begins when he breaks his own employees' union in 1890. Play a little, Otis uh, runs the Merchants and Manufacturers Bob Association, Dylan, which hires labor spies, imports strike breakers, and creates blacklists to keep known unionists.
let's get on now with uh, chapter three. Harrison Gray Otis owns the Los Angeles Times. In addition to shaping the heavenly image of Southern California, Otis is the chief architect of LA's ongoing anti-union campaign. It begins when he breaks his own employees' union in 1890. Otis runs the Merchants and Manufacturers Association, which hires labor spies, imports strike breakers, and creates blacklists to keep known unionists from working. The association receives generous support from admirers like Henry Huntington, owner of the Pacific Electric Railway. Huntington had consolidated his enormous economic and political power in Los Angeles by marrying his aunt, the widow of Collis Huntington, one of the four original owners of the Central Pacific Railroad. The Huntingtons don't much like Otis, but agree with him on the need to keep Los Angeles workers in their place. However, the fanaticism of Otis, who likes to be called General Otis, causes a reaction in turn-of-the-century Los Angeles. The labor movement grows alarmingly radical. Leaders of the Los Angeles Council of Labor, such as shoemaker Lem Biddle, suffragist Francis Noel, and organizer Fred Wheeler are socialists. They believe workers who produce all wealth should own and use it themselves. Even the occasional capitalist, like Gaylord Wilshire, after whom Wilshire Boulevard is named, becomes convinced by socialist ideas. Working people are listening too. Laundry workers hear the message because they work 12 to 14 hour days without overtime pay. Serious burns from scalding liquid and harsh chemicals are considered part of the work. As in the rest of the country, children in Los Angeles are employed everywhere alongside adults. Since they are paid very little, competition with child labor forces down the wages of adults too. Iron workers who raise the skeletons of the new buildings called skyscrapers face injury and death each day for the lowest pay in the building trades. There are no workers' compensation or occupational safety laws to help them. Iron workers have to deal with the National Erectors Association, which hires labor spies like Robert Foster. As Iron Workers Union leader John McNamara reports, the association recruits professional thugs to beat up those who attempt to form a union. On both sides, it was war to the knife and knife to the hilt. Responding to these conditions, working people seek solutions. In 1901, women and men organized themselves into the Shirtwaist and Laundry Workers Union. They want a 10-hour day, time and a half for overtime, Sundays and holidays, and equal wages for men and women. When the laundry owners refuse to meet these requests, 500 employees in seven laundries go on strike. The owners are backed by the full strength of the Merchants and Manufacturers Association. The Los Angeles Times tells its readers that the laundry workers enjoy excellent working conditions and under no circumstances should the owners submit to union tyranny. As a result, the workers are able to win union recognition and better conditions in just one of the laundries. Nevertheless, union membership in Los Angeles quadruples between 1900 and 1903. 
You are a streetcar driver working the Market Street line. For 10 hours each day, you observe the new century's marvels like horseless carriages, which only rich men can afford. You roll past beautiful buildings carefully made by skilled craftsmen, but you have no time to admire things. Traffic is intense. San Francisco is known as a union town. The streetcarmen's union alone has 2,000 members. The strongest unions, however, are made up of the craft workers in the Building Trades Council, who enjoy the protections of a union shop as the result of a powerful strike victory in 1900. Each worker needs a union card to work. Each contractor has to hire union workers and use only union-made materials. Any violation of these rules is swiftly dealt with by the council and its Irish immigrant leader, P.H. McCarthy. Women are becoming a force in the San Francisco labor movement for the first time. Facing bullying supervisors, physically uncomfortable workstations, and sexual harassment, telephone operators form a union. They want to defend themselves against work one operator calls nerve-destroying. Some workers have already won the eight-hour day. You hope your commons union can do the same soon, because 10 hours on your feet six days a week is no picnic. Determined to roll back union achievements is a secret anti-union employers association. It attempts to break the Teamsters Union in the summer of 1901. The plan backfires. By the end of summer, more than 15,000 workers are on strike in solidarity with the Teamsters and for a universal eight-hour day. Sailors Union leader Andrew Furyuseth is chosen to coordinate strike activities. Waterfront workers in 14 unions shut down the port of San Francisco. Bitter battles rage in the streets between workers and armies of thugs hired by the employers. Unionists are infuriated by collaboration between the police and strike breakers, and by Mayor James Phelan, who turns a deaf ear to union leaders arguing the police should remain neutral. After 10 weeks, a truce is arranged. The unions not only survive, within a few weeks they form the Union Labor Party and elect Eugene Schmitz, leader of the Musicians Union, mayor of San Francisco. For years, most unions followed the political advice of AFL President Sam Gompers, who urged labor to reward your friends and punish your enemies within the Democratic and Republican parties. This policy does result in some labor law reforms enacted by progressive politicians. But the waterfront strike converts San Francisco workers to a new viewpoint. Says Furyuseth, I found that we had a class government already, and inasmuch as we are going to have a class government, I most emphatically prefer a working class government. In 1900, Eugene Debs runs for the presidency of the United States. Known to Los Angeles unionists as the leader of the American Railway Union, he had first come to their city following the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, speaking before huge crowds of workers. During that strike, Debs learned that corporations could force the government to do their bidding against the people. The experience converted him into a socialist and motivated him to run for president. For his running mate, he chose Job Harriman, a skinny Indiana preacher turned lawyer. Calling for restraints on corporations and economic justice for working people, their ticket received 100,000 votes. But the socialist message was just beginning to spread. Harriman had moved to Los Angeles for his health. He soon rose to prominence as a union attorney. Many of his clients were the victims of Otis and the merchants and manufacturers. 
when Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist labor organizer, is arrested in Los Angeles with his brother under flimsy legal circumstances, Harriman defends him and helps to turn his case into a union cause. General Otis writes in Times editorials that the demonstrations of support for Flores Magón in the Mexican-American community are being conducted by greasers, not of the better kind, of Mexican. Otis is referring to working people such as those who built LA's electric rail system. With the assistance of the Labor Council's Lem Biddle, Mexican workers had gone on strike against El Traque in 1903 and 1904, earning the wrath of Otis and Huntington. We worked in your orchards of peaches and prunes And we slept on the ground neath the light of the moon Due to its socialist leadership, the Los Angeles Council of Labor is way ahead of the rest of the labor movement in extending its hand to workers of color. When farm workers reach across barriers of language and race to form the Japanese-Mexican Labor Alliance, Fred Wheeler convinces the all-white labor council to support them in creating the first union in California's fields. Wheeler travels to Oxnard, just north of Los Angeles. He finds a small town. Its stores and services support the famous Southern California citrus industry. But Oxnard is also surrounded by extensive sugar beet farms beneath the shadow of a massive factory. Built in 1897, the second largest sugar works in the United States, it's owned by the Oxnard family, just one of whom lives within a thousand miles of Oxnard. The Oxnards treat the factory managers well, providing them with large houses and nice parties. Oxnard workers are treated less well, especially the farm workers. Brought by labor contractors from Mexico and Japan to work in the beet fields, they live in places like these. They pay inflated prices for their food and supplies in company stores, and work long hours planting, thinning, harvesting, and transporting the sugar beets. Early in 1903, the growers, in an attempt to eliminate the middleman, formed their own labor contracting company. The Japanese and Mexican contractors lose business, and workers' wages are cut. Anger helps them to form a union and go on strike. Despite grower-initiated violence reported as a labor riot in the local newspapers, the farm workers stand firm for two months. Few sugar beets make it into the mill, Finally, the bosses back down. With some help from Wheeler, JMLA President Kusuburo Baba, shown here in a photo taken years later, negotiates a settlement restoring workers' pay and giving Japanese and Mexican contractors back their business. Against all odds, the union wins. But its troubles aren't over. The Mexican Secretary of the Alliance, J.M. Lazarus, petitions the National AFL for a union charter. Samuel Gompers responds, It is understood that in issuing this charter to your union, we will under no circumstance accept membership of any Chinese or Japanese. Lazarus and the Mexican members of the Alliance refuse Gompers' condition. They write back, In the past, we have counseled, fought, 
lived on very short rations with our Japanese brothers and have toiled with them in the fields and they have uniformly been kind and considerate, we would be false to them, to ourselves, to the cause of unionism if we now accepted privileges for ourselves which are not accorded to them. Without connection to the broader labor movement, the JMLA soon disappears from sight. One of the San Francisco workers who rides your streetcar is George Farris, a rank-and-file member of the Carpenters Local 22. We don't know how he looked because, like most working people back in the day, he left no pictures. But Farris did something unusual by which we do know him. He kept a diary. Like most carpenters, he suffered periods of unemployment. He attended union picnics, was a teetotaler, and took a quiet pride in his craft skills. The wind last night blew down a two-story building on Sacramento Street that was nearly ready for the lathers. But our building stood the wind all right. Farris stopped by the union hall to pick up a straw hat to wear in the Labor Day parade. The parade was splendid. The paper said it was the largest ever seen in San Francisco. It took two hours and 40 minutes to pass a given point. These numbers are reflected in labor's political strength. Among the marchers is waitress Maud Younger, who helps the working women's suffrage movement gain momentum. The labor vote also keeps the Union Labor Party in power for much of the century's first decade. But city politics are on a smooth ride for working people. Mayor Schmitz and most of his board of supervisors are implicated along with leading businessmen in a nasty bribery scandal. Soon, this is the least of the city's problems for workers and for everyone else. On April 18, 1906, San Francisco was first shaken by a huge earthquake and then ravaged by fires from ruptured gas mains. Over the next few years, union labor enthusiastically rebuilds San Francisco. You are glad that restoring the streetcar lines is a top priority because you need the work. Due to the emergency, workers and unions agree to suspend work rules and wage increases for a time. But when some bosses take advantage of the situation, labor conflict flares. Your union asks for an eight-hour day at $3 pay to keep up with sharply rising living costs. Patrick Calhoun, owner of the United Railroads, responds by locking you out. Perhaps he knows that in two days, he will be indicted for bribery in the spreading political corruption scandals. The first day of the strike, you are enraged to hear that strikebreakers have fired into a crowd of your brother street carmen, killing two. Peter York, a Catholic priest and union sympathizer says, Where there is not justice, there cannot be peace. The Labor Council proclaims a boycott. Let every union man, woman, and child keep away from Calhoun's cars. Many middle-class suffragists refuse to support the Carmen. It's not their husbands, sons, and brothers on strike. You are heartened when working women, upset with their middle-class sister's lack of sympathy, show their solidarity with your cause by forming the Independent Wage Earners Suffrage League. You are also pleased with Mayor Schmitz when he rejects Calhoun's request to put police on the streetcars. You'd rather the police pay attention to the scab Carmen and their continuous violence against strikers and the public. But after six months, 
San Franciscans grow weary of walking and bicycling to work. You lose Schmitz when he is convicted in the Union Labor Party corruption scandals. Calhoun waits you out behind his private army of strike breakers. A political fight erupts between union factions over whether to support the scandal-ridden Union Labor Party. Your union gets caught in the middle, and your strike fund shrinks. Hungry, you are forced back to work at 10 hours a day on the old pay scale. You have been defeated by divisions in the labor movement, by the public taint spread over all unions by the corrupt Union Labor Party, and by the superior resources of capital. Six of your union brothers are dead. The Carmen's Union is crushed, not to be rebuilt for years. Politically, though, things improve. Building Trades Council leader McCarthy rids the Union Labor Party of its corrupt elements, promising a clean administration he's elected mayor in 1909. He faces an immediate challenge. San Francisco employers tell him that if the unions do not organize Los Angeles, competition from its cheap labor will bankrupt San Francisco businesses. Business leaders issue a warning, go south and organize Los Angeles or accept the open shop.
safe and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com this is Tusser Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for near fun every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? 
Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's Performance Space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsadai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF brings you visual and auditory mind control. For the best graphic design, physical merchandise, and live music promotion, go to www.subliminalsf.com and check out their hilarious t-shirts and super cool bands at clubs and bars all over the Bay Area. Subliminal SF creates amazing flyers, posters, and design for every need. So go now to www.subliminalsf.com and experience what this wonderful local business has to offer. Hey folks, this is the Flat Black Plastic Show on Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. <laughs> 